So glad that you're here this morning, and let's again, because last week they didn't hear it, let's give a hand to all of our friends in Auditorium B this morning. Just so glad. I want to say good morning to you. I want to thank all of you for making room in here so more people can come. We also want to welcome many of you watching and listening online. You may be watching in a connect group today. You may be watching because you were serving this morning. We want to thank you if you've been serving. You may be watching us uh, in Ontario or around the world. Whoever you are or wherever you are, you're most welcome. And as Joanna just said and prayed, uh, this is our new series. We're coming into Easter, and so we're really excited. So if you've got a Bible this morning, I'd love you to turn to the book of Romans chapter 3, and virtually or physically, we'd love you to turn there and then we'll begin our journey together. Uh, Pastor Chris in the video we just watched said it right. Spring is here, which I think is great. Uh, We in Canada have been desperate for this and we've had, well, Mother Nature has lied to us many times, but now it's here. And I I think we've all talked about this. We've been really desperate this year uh, for spring. We're appreciating it more than we have ever have before. I I was at a wedding last night. Joel Penny, one of our pastors, got married last night, which was great. And uh, someone said, oh, it's going to be so unbelievably hot tomorrow. It's going to be 11. I said, man, do we live in Canada? Uh, You know, it's 11. Oh, yeah, you know. Uh, But I've noticed again, I've said this a few weeks ago, but I think we all can experience this. Our hopes get excited. We get up. Uh, when spring gets close. And there's great signals for us that spring is coming. One of them, of course, is that snow begins to melt. Another thing, I went into my garden this week and I saw the beginning of tulips. I was like, oh, I started crying. It's happening. It's real. Um, You know, the big thing for us is robins, right? When you start seeing robins, raise your hand if that's a signal for you. You're like, oh, oh, there's robins. Oh, we're not going to die yet. You know, uh, it's great. But actually, the the thing I enjoy the most is actually over here. Uh, trees. Uh, to me, uh, spring is most sort of intoxicating for me uh, about trees. When, when I look at trees, see all of our trees right now in, in southern Ontario still look like this, right? They seem to have no life. And yet if you look unbelievably close, you start seeing what? What do you see at the end of trees? You start seeing life. You start seeing buds. And, and I always love going near trees because though it seems like these trees are dead, they are not dead. They're actually coming alive. And as you go close, you start seeing the signs of life. And I think we all know this in southern Ontario. It's suddenly like one day the trees look like this and you wake up the next morning and what do they look like? They're just, boom, trees. They're alive. There's all these leaves. But that's the exact theme that we've chosen this year for Easter, to come alive. Because this symbol right here is actually what Easter really is all about. Where something that looks dead, actually there's something going on inside of this thing. That life is beginning, they are coming back alive after and out of winter. And that is actually the invitation that God is inviting us as a community and actually this whole region to experience if we would and if we'd want it. Now, if there is one experience in history, 
of coming alive that is most significant, if there's one death in history that has had more impact than any other, see, whether you're a Christian here or not this morning, all would agree that the death of Jesus is the most talked about, most thought about, most written about, most venerated, most influential death in human history. And of course, the reason why Jesus' death is so unbelievably significant and huge in historical terms is because what happened three days later? Jesus, we claim as Christians, did not stay dead, but he came alive. He physically was risen from the dead. And when he came back to life, everything changed. And so now we begin our new Easter series called Come Alive as we choose to journey with God to reflect again on this amazing act of coming back to life. And we together, whether we've been Christians for decades or we've just become a Christian or we're thinking about becoming one or we're deeply skeptical and not even truly looking, we together as a community get to be confronted with grace. We get to be wooed into love. We get to once again see for the first time or all over again the height and the depth and the width and the breadth of God's love and it's best and it's most clearly seen in Jesus' resurrection. Now, if you read the Gospels carefully, if you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you will notice as Jesus lay dying on Good Friday, he uttered seven phrases or words. Now, the second last thing that Jesus said as he laid dying on the cross was recorded by his best friend, John. It's a very simple phrase. It's a phrase that if you've done church for a while, you've heard. It's found in John 19.30. It's simple. He said, it is what? Say it loud. Finished. It is finished. And the question we always need to ask is, well, what is finished? See, this cry implies something was being accomplished, something that had been planned out was being done, maybe. Or maybe this is just the last words of a dying man, and who was finished? Well, it was him. Now, there's a lot of reasons why Jesus died, but let me reassure you this morning as we go into this new Easter season, this was no sort of declaration of defeat. This was not a man's last death gurgle who said, all is lost. When he said it is finished, this was triumphant declaration. Unlike what so many people think, Jesus' death was not a mistake. It was not just a political act only. It was not just the Jewish religious leaders of the day feeling so threatened by Jesus that they got their way only. It was not just the Roman Empire through their soldiers killing off another so-called threat to Roman peace only. It was not just another person killed in the line of millions who was standing up against injustice and fighting for people in the margins only. These are not only the reasons why Jesus died. Are those all true? Yes, that is real, historic. It makes up part of the mosaic. But it is heaven's view that is most significant when we approach Easter. Because from heaven's view, from that vantage point, all the other reasons why Jesus died are put in the rightful place. All the chaos of Good Friday was being used to accomplish the sovereign will of God the Father and the sovereign will of God the Son and the sovereign will of God the Holy Spirit who, because of love, decided to provide a way back to himself. Jesus, time and time again before he died, talked about his death. Actually, his best friends, really, if there's a modern translation, would tell him, would you just shut up about that? 
It was like he was obsessed about his death and like, you're such a downer, Jesus. I mean, you're doing all these amazing things. Can you stop talking about this so-called death? But Jesus would not give up the subject because this is why he had come. In John 10, 17, John said the most, or Jesus said the most profound words that John recorded. This is what Jesus said. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me. I lay it down on my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down and the authority to take it up again. This command I have received from my father. And that's exactly what happened. Jesus gave his own life up. No one took Jesus' life. He came and he gave it. He was in control the whole time. But the question that we're going to wrestle with this whole Easter season, today, next week, Good Friday, and Easter Sunday is this. What happened at that very moment? What was happening on that terrible Good Friday? What was happening? What was Jesus accomplishing? What was Jesus dealing with? What was he taking? What was he giving back? What was he doing for you? What was he doing for myself? What, what was Jesus doing for every person you will ever see in your lifetime and all the others, the billions you will never meet? What was Jesus doing when he was declaring, it is finished? Jesus, two, two chapters later in John 12, said these words. John 12, 23, the hours come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Uh, very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it only remains a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Now my soul is troubled. What shall I say? Father, would you save me from this hour? No. It is for this very reason I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Now Jesus is living in an agricultural context. And so in his context, he uses wheat. And he basically, it's sort of like he picks up a small piece of wheat and he says... See this piece, this little seed? He said, this has no purpose unless it dies. But we all know what happens when a seed is put in the ground, it dies and it sits there. But what appears to be death is not really death because later what happens, that one little seed begins to grow underneath the surface and burst forth and breaks through the ground and it produces a shaft of wheat which produces tens or hundreds of seeds that produce more life. If Jesus was here in southern Ontario today, this is what he'd talk about. If he was in, in, Sask in Saskatchewan, he'd talk about wheat. But here he'd talk about trees. And he'd come and say, it's the same thing. We all see these trees. And this little tree here, this red oak, this eventually over 30 or 40 years we know will become 40 or 50 feet tall and huge and strong. But how did this begin? How did these trees begin? How? What happens? It says that one little seed in the fall falls. And, and it's put in the ground and it dies. One little thing. My favorite seeds at fall are maple seeds. You know what I'm talking about? The helicopters? Did you play with those as kids? You'd throw them up and they'd come down. But that one little seed goes in the ground. And what happens? It spends the winter in death. But suddenly in the spring, that one little seed begins to break through the ground. And if it survives, it begins to produce what? A tree. 
And a small tree like this grows into a large tree, summer to winter, spring to fall, year after year. And what happens every single year? Small trees become big trees. And Jesus would say to us, and what happens? So many seeds are produced out of that one tree. Jesus is saying, don't you get it? I have come to die because if I die, when I break out of the ground, what I will produce is significant. It will impact thousands, millions, billions of lives, just like wheat or trees. It's one little seed that appears as nothing. That nothingness produces life. That is the heart of Easter, to come alive and be reminded that winter does not win. Well, after Jesus did rise from the dead, those that walked with him and talked with him and were so changed by him, those that were there when he talked about his life being laid down, those that were there when he talked about wheat, now they've met him, he's alive, and and they have been so changed by his message and by him, they try to find images and, and words and ideas to fully express the power and the beauty and the magnitude and the life change and the hope and the kindness of this thing called coming alive. And so what did they do 2,000 years ago? People just like us who were following Jesus looked around at everyday normal life and tried to find as, any, as many images as possible to express the grandeur of this history, the, the grandeur of this Easter. So here's what they did. All these different authors that you read about in scripture went to all these different places. They, they, they took images from the court of the law. They, they took images from financing, finance and accounting. They went to the world of business. They went to the world of religious worship. They went to the world of personal relationships and they went to the gritty and harsh world of the battlefield and they compile as many images, as many ideas. They, they almost create this kaleidoscope that, that helps us understand what really happened when Jesus was dying and when Jesus said it is finished and then when Jesus came alive. Now, of all the images that are here, we'll spend the next two weeks going over them. In Romans chapter 3, Paul actually speaks to four of them. And in these small little passage, this small little group of verses, Paul unpacks at like a rapid pace all these images to express what really was accomplished when he said it is finished. Now, if you've read read the book of Romans, chapter 1, 2, and chapter 3 are really hard to stomach. If you go home and read them today, you'll, you'll realize how difficult Romans 1, 2, and half of 3 are. Because basically what Paul does is he gives us the unbelievably bad news before he gives us the good news. Before he gets to all these images that give us great hope. Before he talks about Jesus coming back alive. He spends a lot of time in winter before he gets to spring. Here's a great summary in Romans 3, 9. You've got a Bible, you can look at it with me. He says, what shall we conclude then? Here's my concluding thoughts, he says. Does anyone have any advantage? He's speaking as a Jewish man. None at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and non-Jews alike are all under the power of sin. For as it is written, that is in the Old Testament, there is no one righteous, not even one. Now just look up for a moment. That is saying that there is not one person on earth who is in right relationship with God. That's what that means. Keep reading. He says, there's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. Okay, look up again for a moment. You go, that's not fair. 
I, I seek God and my friends who aren't Christians seeking God. And Paul says, no, no, don't you understand when you really sit with people and talk to them about their seeking and you ask them what type of God they're trying to find, they have already invented a God in their head that suits them. No one is really at their core searching for the true, only, holy, loving God of Scripture. No one. All have turned away. We've all become, and this is a spiritual comment, worthless. Yet after two and a half chapters of the bad, the grim, the in-your-face, the truth you cannot avoid, only after the very, very, very bad news does the good news suddenly come forward and shines the brightness. You see, the darker things are, the more deadly things are, the more disturbed a situation. Then in that place, more the power of God, his freedom and his peace and liberation are seen and felt and accepted. There was one pastor who said, if you read Romans 1, 2, and 3... The dynamic presents a dilemma for God and us. From a human point of view, how can we, such profoundly corrupt human beings, ever be made right in the sight of God again? Because divine justice demands condemnation, yet divine love wants to reach out to a guilty human race. What is God going to do with himself? Well, the answer for Paul and the answer for us is always Jesus. It's always about Jesus, his calling, his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, and his work on behalf of us. Since Jesus really did come alive, we now also get to come alive also if we embrace him. So that's why Paul, in verse 20, begins to unpack all of these different images to help us grasp what was taking place when Jesus said it was finished before he comes back to life. It says in Romans 3.20, listen to the word of God this morning. Therefore, no one, no one will ever be declared righteous in his sight, that's God's sight, by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. It was Martin Luther, the great reformer, who said one of the principal points of the law in true Christian theology is actually not to make people better, but worse. The law shows us our sin. And actually, if we really look into the face of the law, we look as the Ten Commandments, if we really look at them, we will become humbled and terrified and bruised and broken, and by that means be driven to the comfort of our blessed Savior. See, our condition as human beings, as we think on Easter, becomes very clear if you really take time to look at the law. Yet in that broken place, Paul wants to show us that God has given us a new situation. He has actually changed our state. He has changed our circumstances. It is finished. The reason why Jesus came alive is now going to find its home in these images. Romans 3.21, but now. He says, but now. That was that. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. But now, two words like I've preached in 2009 bring so much hope for us. A new start has happened. Life has changed again. We actually might be able to come alive again. We could actually move from winter to spring again. We get to move from a time before Jesus to a time after his perfect virgin birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. See, there has been a decisive shift in salvation history. And this is what Paul says. And this is so important as we begin our Easter journey this year. There is a righteousness, a right standing with God that is promised here that is apart from the law. 
The work of God through Moses, actually the work of God from Genesis to Malachi, cannot contain the gospel. The law just keeps showing us our need for a radical external righteousness because we keep falling short. By the law, we become conscious of our sins. See, if you really, like I just said, this week, read the Ten Commandments, if you really just read them at face value, and then you truly had the courage to evaluate your thoughts and how you think about others, and what you do, and you looked at your family, and you looked at your business, and then you turned on CNN and ABC or whatever you watch, CBC, and then you went on your Twitter feed and Facebook, and you really just read the law of God, which by the way, God didn't wake up one day and say, well, I like, I like these 10 rules. No, no, these are reflections of him. These laws are not separated from God. They are his DNA. He doesn't like murder like I've preached because he is a life-giving God. He hates adultery because he's a covenant-keeping God. See, this reflects him. And when you break God's law, you assault him. If you took the time to really do this, we would all see how far we really are from God. And Paul comes along and he says, don't you know that though we become conscious of our sin through the law, actually it's going to drive us to someone else. He says, not only does the law make us conscious of our sin, he also says, the law and the prophets testify. He was basically saying that from Genesis to Malachi, all the amazing work of God in the Old Testament was to prepare the world. This was a grand foreshadow, a pointing, a preparing for the world to see Jesus himself because Jesus would perfectly keep the law and he would come and do everything we we couldn't and he, through his life and then his death and his resurrection, would clear a way back apart from the law. That could be a good amen moment for some of us. I love when one person said the cross one wrote is no afterthought. There's no plan B from God. It didn't shock him. Oh my, no, no. This has been God's intention from the beginning of time to reveal his saving righteousness by sending his son as a sacrifice for us. See, if you read your Old Testament If you read Leviticus this week, wouldn't that be a challenge for some of you? Do that. Every sacrifice, every ritual, every feast, every fast, all the worship of God from the tabernacle to the temple, all that was God-given that makes up the fabric of authentic God-given Jewish worship of the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and Jacob is fully seen and understood and expressed and fulfilled and accomplished in and through Jesus when he came alive. Now, Paul knowing that he, if we read Romans through his sheer, blunt honesty, would overwhelm and break us by showing us our true condition and separation before a holy God. He moves us to a hopeful place, a place to see that there is a new chapter, that there is new life, to really begin to flesh out the implications of Good Friday. Hope is given. It's like the sun is rising. It's like I said, robins come out and there are buds on the trees. Spiritually, we actually begin to be able to say there is an answer for our radical corruption, our terrible rebellion, and our inability to break slavery. And so now Paul unleashes a torrent of images when he thinks about Jesus dying on the cross. Verse 22, this is what it begins. He says, the righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between Jews and non-Jews. Now, the very first image he uses, thinking about the death and resurrection and the work of Jesus, is from the court. It's from the world of lawyers and judges. See that word righteousness? 
It's a legal term. When the original hearers of this document would be listening to this read in a church service, they would know what Paul was talking about. See, righteousness is the process by which God acts to make people in right relationship with him. When God makes us righteous, here it is, God gives a person a new legal standing before him. Here's what basically is being said. You are no longer legal status convict. You are now citizen. I want you to think about that. You talk to any person who's an ex-con, and as they come out of the system, right, which is difficult in itself, As they try to get a job, the difficulty they have. Why? Because convict is on their documents. And convict is how people see them. They can't escape this history because it's tattooed in their life. But spiritually, when Jesus said it is finished, this is what he's declaring. You are no longer convict. You are now friend. You are no longer convict. You are now citizen. It's like a judge saying you are guilty, but someone else is taking the punishment for you. So forever now you get a clean slate. Your your record has truly been wiped. This is what it meant when Jesus said it is finished. It's not my work or or someone else's, it's, it's God's. And as this new standing comes through faith, faith becomes the place of an action Faith is the, it just means trusting or, or relying upon. Or it's never relying on a church or a person. It's always in Jesus Christ. When you put your trust in Jesus, the Jesus of Scripture, the Jesus of history, the Jesus of faith, the one who's fully human and fully God, the Christ, the anointed one, when you say to Jesus, I put my now and not yet in your hands, when you do this, we know we are made right and no longer are convict but citizen. Why? Because he not only is God in flesh, but he was faithful when none of us were. That is the good news of great joy for all who believe. See, even believing is a gift. This is what Paul wrote in Ephesians 2. We just studied this book together. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith. This isn't from yourself. It is a gift of God. What's a gift of God? Well, salvation's a gift from God. Grace is a gift of God. And even faith is a gift of God. God has provided everything we need to meet him. Verse nine, not by works, not by what any of us do, so no person can boast. So we are called convict and then we're called citizen. And the first audience would understand this grand image that he was using But then very quickly, Paul throws us back like a roller coaster. You know, our heads sort of snap to the side because he takes us just for a moment back to our history. And he pens one of the most famous verses ever uttered, ever memorized, said a billion times over. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Here again is the summary of chapter 1, 2, and 3. Paul says, Jews and non-Jews, all of us are under the power of the sin. All of us are condemned under the wrath of God. All of us have a heart full of sin in the sense that sin touches everything. The most religious person on earth today, the most unreligious, the most kind and unkind, the wicked and the righteous, babies, children, teens, young adults, adults, those who were just born today and those who are going to die today, all of them are under the dynamic of sin. We've all fallen and we cannot get up. We've fallen very, very hard, and we've fallen from one place, the glory of God. You know, the word glory in church is said a lot, but most of us never think about what it means. Glory means opinion. Glory means reputation. Glory means image and reflection. 
That means that we cannot have the opinion, reputation, image, or reflection of God. Rabbis 2,000 years ago used to say that when Adam sinned and was removed from the garden, he lost the glory of God. That is in the sense that he lost the proximity and the radiance and the reflection of God. And we have all been in that condition ever since. But that is not the end of the story. God did not let us fall continually farther and farther away. God chose to intervene. We have fallen and yet he has come and he has said it is finished and he has come alive. So this is not the end of the story. So he uses the image of the courtroom and he keeps using it. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But then he says in verse 24, And all are justified freely by his grace through redemption that came by Christ Jesus. That word justified is a word we should all know. It's an old word, and yet it's also a very strong legal, legal word. It means to be made righteous. It is actually a word, we get acquitted. We are guilty, and then God, by the work of Jesus, declares us not guilty. And understand the power of this. See, so many of us, even as Christians, don't believe this. We go, yeah, yeah, I'm justified. I'm in right standing with God. I've been acquitted. But we act like we're on parole. Think about it. How many of us really, really act like we're on parole with God and maybe he's going to throw us back into the slammer? That is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the gospel of religion that says if you do and act right, he loves you more. That is a lie from hell. This is a declaration that we are justified. And what does justification mean? It says at the beginning of the relationship, he declares us not guilty. At the beginning of the relationship, he says you are acquitted. And it is forever. We are not on parole. We are now his children. And so he says, you want to understand what it is when Jesus says it is finished? You used to be a convict, you're not a convict. You were guilty, you've been made not guilty by another's work. Let me tell you the power of our judge and the power of our lawyer. They are both the same person and both of them conspired to make us okay. There's great power when you understand the images that the authors of scriptures use. Well, he's not done because he's saying this is done by grace and, and, and it's free and, and it's beautiful and, and, and it's profound. And really what he starts doing in this verse, he starts combining the images of the courtroom and then he ties them with the world of accounting and finance. He's saying this is done free and we've been declared because of Jesus' work uh, good. Uh, he's transferred his account to our account. Remember, I, I used this image once before with our community. I said, imagine if you had a mortgage so high you're like, oh, that's me. Mm, yeah, okay. Um, but imagine you had a mortgage so high you would never be able to pay it off in your lifetime. And not only that, imagine that every one of your credit cards at this moment were maxed out. I'm talking about American Express, Visa, uh, HBC, your Costco card, like you're done, right? Um, and it's at every one of them's at max. And also, you have not paid your taxes in 10 years. And all in a moment, the bank and the creditors and the government show up and say, it is time for you to pay your money back. You would be bankrupt. You would be liable. You would be done for. And yet Paul, when he's using these images, not only chooses to use images from the courtroom, he uses the world of finance and accounting and says, don't you know, when Jesus showed up, he paid off your mortgage, he cut your credit cards in half, in the sense of he literally got rid of them, he paid them off, he dealt with the government, your account is now clean because of another person. Man, he's got a bank account and he decided to give it to you. 
See, the power of that is how could you believe that you're going to be in right standing with God when that's actually financially, in a spiritual sense, what you look like? That is why Jesus Christ and the message of Christianity is so hope-filled and so offensive because it says you can't do anything, but let me tell you who can. So he takes the world of the court, he takes the world of accountants and finances, and then he just sort of keeps going. He, 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 he says it's free and it's amazing, and then, then he moves into another thing. See that word redemption in verse 24 there? He, he now uses the image of business, He says, don't you know that when Jesus said it is finished, he redeemed us. Now, redemption, again, is a word we use in church a lot, but it's lost its power. Redemption is an old economic term. It's an old term. 2,000 years ago, when slavery was very common, this is what redemption meant, that if you had been captured in war and you were brought to the slave block, Your family could come and redeem you, could buy you back out of a situation you could never get out of. This is an idea of being bought in a slave market. The Bible says that every human being on earth is enslaved to sin. We have to do it. We can't stop. We're enslaved to death. Every person dies. You can't avoid it. And every one of us is owned by the devil in the sense of not we're like, ah, not like that. But all of us, in the sense, are owned by him because we're under his kingdom. And this is what's declared by Paul using this economic image. He comes and says, don't you know when Jesus said it is finished? Don't you know that when spring came and he came out of the ground? Don't you know that he chose to buy you back, to redeem you out of a slave market you can't get out of by yourself? He says, not only are you not guilty, not only are your your accounts clean, you've moved from the red to the black. No, no, there's more here. You've been bought out of slavery because he's a good master and he wants to have life again. See, this is the power of what's happening at Easter. He's saying that we are moving from darkness to light, guilty to not guilty, convict to friend, from permanent bankruptcy to freedom, from slavery to liberty. What did we start? It is what? finished. And that is what he's declaring. But Paul keeps going. He wants to show us the cost of this, which was so immense, so, so grand, so huge. And so Paul again switches images. Man, you got to keep up with Paul because now not the law, not, not the world of accounting, not the world of business. Now he switches to the world of worship. He begins to pull on thousands of years of ritual and rite found in the Jewish faith. And now Paul in this chapter begins to expound an unbelievable thing when it comes to the death and resurrection of Jesus. He uses the words of worship. Verse 25, read it with me. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of blood to be received by faith. You see those first three words? God presented Christ. I've preached this before, let me preach it again. Let it sink in, in this auditorium and the other and everyone online. God gave Jesus over. Before the beginning of time, God within himself decided to give himself for our sakes. Salvation that is free, cost heaven everything. God gave Jesus up, gave him over to deal with our sin. Good Friday, the terrible events that took place, the death of Jesus was the very plan of God to bring deliverance to the world. And as I said three or four times in different messages, is this some weird form of cosmic child abuse? Absolutely not. For God within himself so loved the world that he chose to send himself to bring us home. 
God gave Jesus over as a sacrifice of atonement. Now that little phrase plunges us into the images of worship in the Old Testament. We never will understand this phrase unless we know about Yom Kippur. If you hang out with some Jewish friends of yours, they'll talk to you about the Day of Atonement. And here's what used to take place. Let me give you the quick background. This is important. So, in Jewish worship, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest, this is the only day the high priest would enter into the presence of God. He would take two goats. I've taught this here before. He would take two goats and he'd flip a coin. Not because he believed in fate. This is how he dealt with the sovereignty of God. And the one that he chose, because of the towing costs, right, was killed. And he would take the blood of that goat and he'd walk in to what they called the Holy of Holies. And in the Holy of Holies, on the Day of Atonement, on the day of dealing with sin, he'd walk in and face the Ark of the Covenant. We talked about this the last two weeks. And in the middle of the Ark of the Covenant, between those two angels, there's this thing called the mercy seat or the place of propitiation. And what would he do? He would take the blood of that goat and he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat because sin is only dealt with, according to the Bible, through shed blood. And so he would, through the blood, cover the mercy seat with another person's, another thing's blood. And God would look upon the blood and not upon the sins of his people. And then he'd walk out of the Holy of Holies and there's still another goat here. And he's like, yes, I didn't get killed. Awesome. Well, not so good for him because then the high priest would take his hands high and he would put his hands on the goat's head and he would place all the sins of Israel on the goat. This is where we get the phrase, anyone can guess? Scapegoat from, right? And all the sins are put on the goat and the goat was sent into the wilderness to what? To die. This is the power of Easter And these images, when you get it, see, here's what's basically happening. Paul is declaring that when Jesus lay dying on the cross and said it is finished, he is saying this is a sacrifice of atonement. Jesus satisfies the wrath of God by the shedding of his blood. And not only that, Jesus becomes our mercy seat and Jesus becomes our scapegoat where all our sins are placed. And Jesus is our high priest that lets us get into God the Father's presence. He is the full picture of what's happening. His blood is shed. God's wrath is put there. His sins, our sins I mean, are put on him. And he's the priest that lets us in. See, God provides a substitute. The substitute is Jesus. God didn't cancel his wrath. He sent it on Jesus' son. And he absorbed and diverts it from all of us to himself. See, God's wrath is just against sin. It's not, it's, it's not withdrawn. It's spent. That's why it says in, in 1 John 4.10, and this is love. That we, not that we have loved God, but he loved us and sent his son, ready, to be a wrath-absorbing propitiation, an atonement for our sins. See, when Paul is saying this little phrase, we just read the verse, and people 2,000 years ago were like, oh my goodness, you're, you're, you're telling me that Jesus is the scapegoat and Jesus is the sacrifice and Jesus, like he's fulfilling all of that and I get to now, ready, walk into God's presence and not fear because it's all covered? Yes. Paul says from the court to finances to economics to worship, when you begin to understand the power of what he was doing on Easter, there should be a great thankfulness and gratitude that bubbles up but also it should kill any notion in us 
at all. And of course, we could do anything. Paul says in the end, he did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at this present time as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. God has to deal with sin, friends. I'm sorry. But God also has to give his love. This is the God we know who is fully holy and fully love. I love when one pastor wrote, simply put, in the past, God didn't pour out his full wrath on the people for their sins. He was patient. He was merciful. You might question that, he says. But however, in Jesus' death, listen, He demonstrates something so profound. He demonstrates his wrath against sin, but also we see the miraculous love and creativity of God. God found a way to forgive us and maintain his moral integrity. He forgave us without ever condoning our sin and saying, it's just okay. How did he do this? By directing towards himself in the person of Jesus the full weight of his wrath deserved. Thus God's holy character is never compromised, and his love is still given to us. You show me one other religion on earth. You show me one other worldview where the God of that movement is loving like this. You will not find him. And that is why Paul says time and time again, with joy and excitement, he says, don't you know why this is good news? Because this is mercy and love and hope. Your, your faith, your coming alive was all heaven given. So that's why he ends by saying in verse 27, where then is boasting? It's excluded. We got no room for pride in this movement. We've got no room for religiosity in this movement. Because if really that is our condition and really that's what Jesus meant when he said it is finished, if that's what really coming alive is all about, man, I just want to say one word. Everyone ready? Thank you. There's such power when we begin to see what was really happening at Easter. This is good news, great joy. Salvation is transferred, not bought. Salvation is free, it's not earned. Salvation is a display of love, not duty. Salvation is a declaration of faith. And when you embrace Jesus, all these metaphors Paul uses become our literal reality. The law court says we are guilty And then we get not guilty and get justified. In the world of finance and accounting, we move from red to black. Is that the right metaphor, red to black? Yes? Yes or no? Yes, thank you. Okay. In the world of economics, we get bought back, we get redeemed. And when we face God himself, we're covered at the altar by Jesus, who's our priest, our mercy seat, our sacrifice, and our forever scapegoat. Can I just say this again? Jesus is our forever scapegoat. Have you ever considered Jesus like that? He is our forever scapegoat scapegoat. For eternity, he bears the marks of our sin. So we will enjoy the new heavens and the new earth, and we will regain Eden again. We're going to be able to walk with the trees again like we were supposed to. That is what was done by Christ. He has pardoned us. He has liberated us. He has filled the gap for us. He stepped in for us. He stands for us. He pays the ransom for us, and he is our substitute forever. Do we not have a beautiful Savior? Do we not? Phenomenal. Phenomenal. I just want to say this as we go into the Easter season, two things, and then I'm done. Here's the first. Uh, Joanna was talking about one week. You say, well, what's the application this week? Well, number one, be thankful. When's the last time as a Christian you sat down and went through each metaphor and said, really, you did this for me? Thank you. An unnatural gratitude to grow up in the church is only spirit-born. Wouldn't that be amazing to have a gratitude beyond duty or tradition on this Easter. 
But deeper than that, if this is true, like really, church, if this is true, if this is really what Jesus said when it is finished, if this was what he was accomplishing, and by the way, we haven't even done all the images yet. We're doing them next week. Then how can we not, with a new courage and tenacity and joy and fervor, not begin en masse to tell people about Jesus? Like if this is really true, I love what Joanna said, don't just pray about inviting someone, invite someone. Like if this is the real gospel, then in this week and one week as we begin tonight and we pray and fast for neighbors and friends and strangers in our streets and our neighborhoods, don't just pray. Ask this same Jesus to give you courage to go to every person that's in your sort of your sphere of influence and say to them, come with me, come with me. You have to hear that there is good news of great joy. You've got to hear that it is possible to move from the winter of your life to spring. Jesus has come alive and you can come alive too. Like church, God is moving so strongly in this region. Don't, st- don't let fear And don't let personality stop the good news from going out. If this is true, pray like you've never prayed before this week for the conversion of all sorts of people and then go and invite them. And don't just pray for our church. Our prayer should be for all churches this Easter that God would move mightily and people would be saved. Don't you agree? Take this seriously. Don't just say, oh, I'm, no, no, no. This week, church, is the rallying cry for us to take the good news that we've learned about, pray for others to encounter this good news named Jesus, and see them come alive too. This is a rallying cry for us to take fasting and prayer and joy seriously, and we say, no, no, I'm not going to take another Easter and not do anything about this. Eternity is at stake. Jesus has done so much for me. I will share it with others. This is what we are here for. This is why God has planted us in Durham. So the takeaway for the church this week is one, oh God, make me thankful. Let this sink in beyond intellect. I want to just not know, I want to know. Everyone agree with that? Good prayer. The second one is begin to pray, take the guidebook fast and say, Lord, who? Who do you want to meet? Who is the person that you want to declare not guilty this Easter? Who is the person that you want to buy back out of slavery? Who do you want to wipe? Whose bank account do you want to empty and then restore in a brand new way? Whose credit cards do you want to destroy? Like this is what we need to be praying. God, who's on your radar? Because if they're on your radar, I know you're going to act. Give me courage. This is a call for us to do this. But lastly, and as the band comes up, I just need to do this. Some of you here in Auditorium B and online, you are the person who has never actually said yes to Jesus yet. You've heard all this and maybe you've grown up in church and you have the title Christian or maybe you don't, but I want you to hear the power of this. You have never had all of this applied to you. You've never been the person who has come to the place where all that Jesus has done has been applied to you because by faith you have not said yes yet. And so here's what I want to tell you at the beginning of our Easter series. To you that have not met Jesus yet in a deep, honest, and authentic way, all you need to do today is receive him by faith. And what does that mean? Faith means trust. It means reliance. And it starts by saying, you know what? You need to admit you've fallen short. Yeah, you're a sinner. You need saving. You need to come to the place where you humble yourself and say, I need the help of Jesus. 
I need liberation. And let me declare to you again, more money, more sex, more power, more friendships, a spouse, education, meditation, religion will never, ever, ever do what Jesus has done. No matter how much you do in your life, what Jesus has done is so much more. And not one of us in this church is sitting here thinking we're better than you because all of us in this church are the first to stand up and say, no, it was never me, it was all Jesus. Anyone agree with that? It was Jesus who did it. We don't stand here in religious arrogance. And so here's my invitation. I encourage you. Jesus at this moment, we're not even at Easter yet, but at this moment says, you can come alive today. You can be declared not guilty today. You can be bought back today. You don't have to live in sin anymore. He's broken the power of that. You don't have to live desperate and far from him. He's come close. All you have to do, it says in Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so if that's you, I'd like everyone to bow their heads and close their eyes. But here in an auditorium B, if that is you, would you raise your hand right now, please? Hi, don't be embarrassed, just raise it. And then I'm going to lead you in a prayer where you can encounter Christ. Okay, so let's pray together. Jesus Christ, at this moment, I come to you really for the first time. And I say, forgive me. I am a sinner. But I believe you are Lord. I believe you've been risen from the dead. You came alive. And I want to be saved. So all that stuff that John preached on this morning, I ask you now to apply to me. I want to be your friend. I turn from my sin. I want to be in right relationship with you. I don't want to be condemned. I want you to become my substitute, my savior, my redeemer. I want you to say I'm not guilty because of Jesus' work. For the first time, I say I trust in Jesus more than myself or anything else. I ask this In the name of Jesus, amen. So let's stand together as a church and let me end this sermon with another prayer and then we'll be done. You and Auditorium B, would you stand too? Lord, we thank you on this beginning of Easter. We join the global church in all of its diversity and we are thankful people that you've done all this for us. Like, thank you. Lord, I pray, Holy Spirit, that the depth and the width and the height of your love and your work on our behalf would move from our heads to our heart. And I pray for great gratefulness, an unnatural gratefulness to break out across our church in this Easter season where we will come deeply thankful, deeply humbled, and deeply joy-filled. And also, Lord, begin to start placing in our minds, even in this service, those you are about to call, those you're about to encounter, and help us to be your hands and feet at this critical moment. In the name of Jesus, who is our Savior and our Redeemer and our Lord. Amen. Isn't our God good? Let's sing back to him now.